Good morning. Uh, it's a great privilege to worship the Lord with you again. It's one that I don't take for granted. Thank you, Kevin, for inviting me back to preach. It's, last time I preached, it was on spiritual warfare, and now it, it's on spiritual warfare. So I think I'm quickly becoming the spiritual warfare guru in this area. Uh, thank you, Church of the Lamb, for the warmth and the hospitality that you've already extended to my family and me. It's a joy to worship with you and to see you this morning. Before we look to God's word, will you help me with your prayers? And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, for the past several months, our churches, both of our churches, uh, including Church of the Holy Cross and Crozet, has been listening for God's address to us in the book of Ephesians. And today, we come to the final section of the letter, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24, where the Apostle Paul basically tells us, watch your back. It's an odd way to end a letter. I don't recommend it. Uh, but in this case, Paul has his reasons. Ever since chapter 4, Paul has been telling us how to live as a Christian. And wow, it's hard work. It's a completely different lifestyle. We're told to guard our speech and control our tempers and resist many of our sexual urges and temptations and even submit to authority. But no matter who you are, regardless of whether you're a new Christian or a seasoned Christian, this lifestyle will always be more difficult than you realize. And it's not just because of the high moral standard to which God calls us. It's because beneath the surface of our lives, an unseen spiritual battle is raging. Now, Paul has spent a fair amount of time in this book telling us about the powers, these evil spirits that rebel against God and hold his world hostage. And even though these spirits have been given a death blow at the cross and uh, have been disarmed by the Lord Jesus himself, they're still lurking around and causing trouble. It's as though they know they're doomed, but they're not going down without a fight. And whether we like it or not, we've been dragged into it. Now, this whole topic of spiritual warfare is controversial. And it's very difficult in these days to have a balanced perspective on it. The tendency, of course, of course, is either to ignore the forces of evil completely, to pretend they don't exist, um, to draw cartoons of the devil with horns and hoofs and a pitchfork in an attempt to undermine that reality. So to ignore it completely or to develop an unhealthy fascination and obsession with it, with everything demonic, which can be just as bad in the long run. 
But Paul wants to give us a realistic picture of what we're up against. Uh, You know, we've all had times when we find it extremely difficult to practice our Christianity. When it's hard to forgive someone or to pray regularly or to break free from bad habits or even to learn more about the faith. But have we ever wondered whether these small struggles and skirmishes might actually be part of a larger campaign against us? That's the lens through which Paul invites us to see our struggles this morning. He wants to convince us, despite what our culture is trying, that our culture is trying to convince us otherwise. Paul is trying to convince us that we are in an intense spiritual war. We're in a war zone. But he also wants to assure us that with God's help, we can stand in the end. And this morning, I'd like for us to see how. I'd like for us to look at three ways we can stand against the enemy. Three ways we can stand against the enemy. And the first way to stand against the enemy is to put on God's power. Look at how our passage begins in verses 10 and 11. Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, Paul's being tactful. Do you know any people who are tactful? Uh, They have this gift of correcting you without you knowing it, right? So I have a friend back in Baton Rouge who would always say, Drew, let me encourage you. And and really, and, and, and when I really messed up, he would say, Drew, let me strongly encourage you. He was correcting me. Uh, But I walked away from those conversations feeling like a million bucks, like nothing ever happened to me. And it was only at the dinner table as I was replaying that conversation to my wife that it dawned on me, I was being corrected. (laughs) That's a little bit of what Paul is doing here. He's encouraging us to be strong, to be brave and confident and courageous. But behind his words is a warning not to underestimate our enemy. We are not strong enough to fight this battle. We are inadequate. And that's difficult for us to hear. It's also a bit surprising since Paul has been telling us all throughout Ephesians that we're in Christ and that we now have these enormous resources available to us. But the temptation, of course, is to begin to feel self-sufficient, to think that we can have this power, this grace, without any warlike vigilance on our part. We cannot underestimate our enemy. These dark powers, they're evil to the very core. They have no moral principles. No code of honor. No higher feelings. They haven't agreed to any kind of Geneva Convention. They make no attempt to civilize 
the weapons of their warfare. They show no, no mercy. They're just plain evil, unlike anything we've ever witnessed before in this world. I would encourage you to read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It's admittedly fiction, but it's Lewis's attempt to help us understand the tactics of the demonic realm. It's sort of like a breach in the correspondence between a senior demonic advisor and his pupil. The devil and his forces are very intelligent. They know us profoundly. Um, they know what makes us tick and fly off the handle. They know what will drive us to that fourth glass of wine. They know our sexual desires and how to twist them and lead, our, lead us astray from our families, from our spouses. They know our besetting doubts about the faith. Those ones that we keep inside of us and never really allow ourselves to share in the context of a small group or something like that. They know our doubts that keep us from a deeper relationship with Jesus. They know us and they hate us. And they will do whatever it takes. They'll stop at nothing to destroy us, to ruin our families to ruin our city, and most of all, to take away our faith. That's why Paul urges us to be strong. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's a, incidentally, these are the very same terms that Paul has used in chapter 1 to describe Jesus' resurrection. You see, not just any strength will do. For centuries, human beings have been facing temptation. And at some point, they've always given in. No matter how strong you are, only one person has survived and actually ended up turning evil back on itself. And that's the Lord Jesus. It's his strength that we need. And that's what God is offering to us. The one who is able, as we saw in chapter 3, to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine. He's the one asking us if we'd like a hand. We would be so foolish to refuse. So Paul is urging us to put on God's power. While at the same time, not underestimating the power of our enemy. And that leads us to the second thing that Paul wants us to do. Not only do we need to put on God's strength. But we also need to know who our real enemy is. Let's do some reconnaissance, shall we? Look with me, please, at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You know, it's easy to get amens in church when talking about spiritual warfare because we, we all think immediately to the culture wars going on in North America, and they're tough. But of course, the amens indicate that God's on our side and everybody else is demonic, right? To talk about spiritual warfare is sometimes like dangling red, red meat in front of a tiger. 
It's, it's a sure way to get a roar, right? But Paul is careful here to explain that our battle is not with people. It's with these spiritual forces of evil. And yet he stops here in verse 12 to be pastoral. And I think we should too. And he's being tactful still. He's telling us who our real enemy is. But we get the sense that he's also warning us about something. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul says. Now, what does that mean? It means that we cannot divide the world with a vertical line into good people on one side. And of course, that's the side that we're on and bad people on the other side. That's just not how evil works. It's not a vertical line that divides people or races or political parties or anything like that. It's more like a horizontal line that runs through all of humanity. All of us have gifts and shadows, good and bad, virtues and vices. And so we can't just say that some people are evil and some people are good. Reality is more complex than that. We can't demonize people because to demonize people means to take the moral high ground. And really, none of us can do that. So if we're not fighting with people, what are we supposed to do with those people in our lives who really hurt us? Um, who have betrayed us, who mock us. And let's just be real, even with the people who, frankly, annoy us. What do we do with them? We learn how to love them, to be patient and compassionate with them. You know, I've had to do that several times. There have been people who have gotten so under my skin and who have wronged me time after time after time. And you know what I've had to do? I've had to start seeing them at least partially as victims of their own evil. Victims of evil. Now, let me clarify. That doesn't get them off the hook. Uh, we still call evil evil. And we still hold people responsible for their actions. There's no room in this passage for the devil made me do it. Satan entered into Judas. He was responsible for his betrayal. But Jesus, knowing all of this, was still able to love him through it. Remember how Jesus, hanging on the cross, breathing his last, said, Father, forgive them? These people who did unspeakable evil to him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Of course, they thought they were doing the right thing. And the Jews thought they were offering service to God by persecuting him. But Jesus knew that they were deceived. You see, when we realize that behind every action is a spiritual force, a spiritual reality, when we realize that behind every sin against us is an army of tempters and a group of villains who wants to destroy that person just as much as that person wants to destroy you 
It helps us to be compassionate. When we face our enemy together with the people who who hurt us, we start to realize with our fellow man that we're actually a little bit on the same team. That there's really no point in going to all out war. And by that, I mean being bitter, being unforgiving, being hard hearted with them. Because we both need to face the real enemy. The ultimate enemy, the one that is behind our human enemy and battle them together. He's the one pulling the levers. And when we see that, when we clarify who our real enemy is, we start to love each other like Paul has urged us to do earlier in this book. Remember, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, being tenderhearted toward one another. Or in the words of Jesus, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. How can we possibly do that? Especially when those people who have hurt us refuse to even own up to their fault. They don't even know. We can only do it by seeing them in some sense as victims. By pitying them just as we would want to be pitied. By showing mercy to them just like we would want mercy to be shown to us when evil gets a grip on us. So let's listen to Paul. He stopped here for a reason. He's talking to us. He's urging us not to go on battering each other, bruising each other, but to look together at our common enemy. First, we have to affirm the existence of an enemy to begin with, that there is indeed such a thing as evil reality. Second, that these powers are real and evil to the core. They really are real and evil. And third, that they're the real enemies, not our brothers and sisters, whether they're in Christ or simply our fellow human beings. They're not our ultimate enemies. They are those made in the image of God whom we're called to exercise great patience with. And love and forgive. So now that we have been encouraged by the Apostle Paul to put on God's power and to know who our real enemy is, there's one thing left to do that's to fight. But it might not look like it. Paul's calling us to arms, but he's calling us to fight like Christians. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, I think we need to say at the outset that there are many good people who would be alarmed by Christians talking about becoming even more militant. Uh, The sad reality is that the church has not always been an agent of peace. Many people have been hurt by the church, And there have been times throughout history, like in the Crusades or the Inquisition, other places, where the church has treated people in ways that are directly contrary to the character of Jesus Christ. And even today, this shouldn't surprise you, some people think of evangelical Christians as as angry fanatics who want to take away other people's freedom. Do we really need to keep fighting? Well, the short answer, of course, is no, not like that. 
we quickly need to own the fact that the church has often reacted too angrily to culture as if we were surprised and aghast that there was evil in the world to begin with. But Paul is urging us to fight in a truly Christian way. Four times in this passage, Paul says that the goal is to stand firm. Let's look. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, take up the whole, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And verse 14, stand therefore. So what does this mean? Just stand there and take it? What does it mean to stand firm in a spiritual battle? Well, first of all, I think Paul is very careful to avoid overly combative language. Most of the armor he lists here is defensive. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. Only one weapon is markedly offensive, and that's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the gospel. And that's because Christians are called to a different kind of combat. We don't fight as the world fights. That's why we need to be so careful throwing ourselves without reservation into culture wars. It's because when we start judging and sticking our feet in the ground, we've already come into enemy territory. It's like when I snap at my daughter at the table and say, we don't talk to our sister like that. It's a little bit self-defeating, isn't it? When the church engages in that kind of warfare, we're already in enemy, in enemy territory. We're already beginning to surrender some of our ground to the enemy. No, the battle Paul is inviting us to fight is one that looks like the cross. We need to take on postures of weakness. It's hard to be weak. It takes strength to be weak when you so badly want to be strong in your own way. Look at how Jesus fought evil. He took the role of a servant. He stooped down in humility. He sacrificed himself. Yes, we can and should be upset about injustice and oppression. Something would be wrong if those things did not upset us. But we respond to it by working for change, by being sacrificial. Our warfare involves resisting the corrupting influences of the evil powers. So think about your city. Where are the powers at work in Elkton? I wish I could tell you. I don't live here. It's up to you as a community to prayerfully discern where God is calling you to identify and transform the broken places in our city and to pray. And that's what I want to talk about at the very end here. There's another way Paul wants us to fight and it's absolutely foundational and it's prayer. Look with me at verse 18. 
praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. We need to give ourselves to prayer. We're in a war. It simply will not do to pray only on the way to work, only while we exercise, only in the shower. Now, I'm not downplaying the significance of those things. Paul wants us to pray at all times. It it, it means what it means. But how can we possibly hope to survive this battle in which we need God's power, the fullness of it, so badly without serious, sustained periods of prayer? You know, nearly everyone I've talked to who has an addiction to pornography treats prayer in this multitask sort of way. Hardly any of, hardly anyone who struggles with addictions like this actually gives their time to sustained periods of prayer, asking for God's power rather than just praying on the exercise bike. It's just a lie. It can't be done. It's not sufficient. Prayer is the foundational way we keep the enemy at bay. And not just for ourselves. Prayer is the way we keep our communities safe from the enemy too. All these people in this room right now, they're dependent on your prayers. It's like the phalanx system in the ancient world where the person on your right is covering you with their shield in their left hand. We're all taking care of each other. It doesn't work. The system doesn't work unless we all work together and move together and have each other's backs. We tend to think so many times of this passage in Ephesians applying only to individuals and to take up all of this armor on our, on our own. But really, Paul's talking to the church. He's talking to all of us. And he's saying, when you come together, you are a force to be reckoned with. You have the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the prayers of all the saints. You have all of this armor clad on you. Couple that with the good works, and it is an impenetrable chain mail by which you can defend yourself, this church, and this city against the wiles of the enemy. Think of all the ways you try to be strong in this life. You want to be strong financially. So you invest in the best stocks and put your money in the best funds. You want to be strong physically. So you work out with the Napotniks. And you diet and you exercise and you work hard at it. Do you put an appropriate amount of energy into being strong in this spiritual area? We must pray. It's our surest defense against the enemy because when we pray, we draw down on God's power, his resurrection power, and that's the only way we can overcome the enemy that wants to destroy us so badly. So Paul ends the letter where he began, doesn't he? With prayer. We have the opportunity to have this intimate relationship with our creator. He's offering us his power. He's offering us his peace and his friendship. 
And how do we access that? It's through prayer. And it's through coming together, setting our sights on the real enemy, dressing ourselves with God's power, and fighting like Christians. And when we do that, the world will know the message of Ephesians, that Jesus Christ has been resurrected and exalted. He's in charge, and he's bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.